นะโมทัสสะปะกวัตโอรหัตโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะปะกวัตโอรหัตโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะปะกวัตโอรหัตโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังดัมมังสังขังนัมสามิ
a dream or waking up or sobering up from a state of intoxication. Hopefully none of you have ever got drunk, but if you did get drunk and then eventually you sober up, well that's something like waking up to the truth. What was before was not true. When you wake up, you become aware of the reality, the truth of the way things are. Sobering up, waking up. And the Buddha said, we're waking up to the way things are, meaning we're waking our heart up to see, to think, to view things in line with the truth of the way things are. What we call samaditi, right view. Because most of the time we're not seeing the way things are and that's why we suffer as human beings. We see what is impermanent as permanent. We see what is dukkha as sukha, happiness. What is suffering as happiness. What is anatta, without a self, we take as a self, atta. We're constantly caught into wrong thinking. Sometimes they asked uh, Ajahn Chah, once they asked, somebody asked Ajahn Chah, what did the Buddha practice under the Bodhi tree on the night of his enlightenment? Ajahn Chah said the Buddha practiced right view, developing and maintaining right view. And not just under the Bodhi tree, wherever he was, he had right view. So it's as if he was always under the Bodhi tree. It's not a physical thing. You have to be in India under the Bodhi tree to be enlightened or to, have, to awaken to the truth. It's about training this heart, this mind, <clears throat> on a daily basis, you could say, or on a constant, regular basis, to keep waking up to the truth until finally we wake up, wake up permanently, which you might say is enlightenment. Bit like when we meditate <clears throat> on these all night meditation sessions, most of us will get sleepy from time to time. But over and over again, you see people working, or you might even say fighting, with their sleepiness to establish mindfulness, sit up straight, open their eyes, maybe go and walk meditation for a while until their drowsiness or sleepiness is gone. This is also similar to enlightenment. That effort, what the Buddha called noble effort or supreme effort, you know, the best kind of effort human beings can make to awaken up to the truth, whether it's literally just trying to shake off some drowsiness through effort in the practice or shake off our wrong views, wrong thinking, which is causing us suffering. It takes effort, perseverance, 
but it can be done. And this is what the Buddha proved. Because the Buddha was a human being just like us. He wasn't a god or some special kind of being. He was a human being just like us. So the Buddha also got old, sick and eventually died. Death of a Buddha we call Parinibbana, entered Parinibbana. But in terms of the body, it died just like our body will die one day. No different. But the Buddha proved that we can awaken to the truth if we put effort in and develop our minds, train our minds in the right way. So this is why we come together to practice. And sometimes it's helpful when you have other people practicing with you. You get some inspiration hearing the Dhamma or seeing others. This is also part of the practice, you know, when you get good examples. So you have the Buddha himself as an example, and all the practitioners since the time of Buddha, men, women, monks, nuns, right down to the present day. We're lucky that there are many people who practice like this around the world or here today. And we can be good examples to each other. And this practice is about is a very complete practice. It's not just uh, one technique of meditation, say the breath meditation or any other technique. It's about training body, speech and mind to awaken to the truth and to express that and support that awakening to the truth. So obviously it involves sometimes training ourselves Discipline, disciplining ourselves to not do certain things that um, take away our mindfulness, that get us caught up into stress. Not saying things that take away our mindfulness, get us caught up into stress or other people stressed and unhappy. This is what we call the practice of sila is the most fundamental or basic practice in Buddhism. It's just learning to live in a very, what you might say, a normal way, where you don't harm others through your speech, your actions, and you don't harm yourself by taking away your mindfulness. So we have the five precepts, say, as a basic practice or guideline in daily life as Buddhists to help our minds develop the best conditions to awaken to the truth. Obviously, if we look at our own lives, you might notice in times when you're perhaps not keeping the precepts or you haven't kept the precepts in the past, what does it do to the mind? It agitates the mind, <clears throat> stirs us up because we have feelings of regret, guilt, shame, worry about the consequences of our actions being found out or problems we develop with other people, bad feelings, anger, ill will and so on. When we keep the precepts though, that's all gone. It's the more we keep, more often we keep them and the more sincerely we keep them, 
the mind feels very calm and relaxed inside. So it's much more receptive to understanding and waking up to the truth, to the Dhamma, like the Buddha. So the Buddha began you know, his, his own practice and encouraged us to begin our practice with just this basic learning to be more mindful and aware of our speech, our actions, so that we don't harm ourselves or others just on a daily basis. We're learning to live in a normal, peaceful way with the world around us. That already takes a lot of effort. That already is something very special when somebody is trying to keep the five precepts. Not easy, because we get caught into situations all the time when we're tempted to not keep the precepts. But that's the practice. And that isn't a practice that you do just sitting under a tree in the forest somewhere. That's a practice that you're practicing every day at home, at work, going here, going there. We have to be turning back to look at ourselves regularly and to see where, where we may be causing stress and suffering through our speech, our actions. There's nothing very difficult to understand. You know, if we give in to our anger or give in to our greed, well, it has consequences and it will come out in our speech, our actions. So you might say this is the first place to practice if you're following the Buddha's path, just to become more aware of our own daily activities and actions and look at them and say, well, what's, what, how well am I living at the moment and what can I do to improve? And none of us are perfect, so there's always some room for improvement. But the Buddha has already shown us we can improve and change as human beings. And nothing is fixed or destined. <clears throat> the way some people think, oh, my life is full of suffering, it has to be like this. My old karma, or I was just born to suffer. <laughs> Everything has a cause. And a lot of our daily suffering, we can look back and see, oh, it's coming through our own mistaken speech, mistaken actions. So this is the first place where the Buddha said practice to wake up, become more aware. Then on a deeper level, look at the, the real source of our experiences of suffering and stress as human beings. Well, it's the mind. It's what we call this wrong thinking, wrong views. This is why the training of the mind in mindfulness meditation is central to the Buddhist practice. However difficult it may seem as an idea, it's something that we should take effort, make effort and take time to, to put effort into it, just as we are tonight. So when you start to practice meditation, you're learning to look back at your mind more closely and really seeing the root causes of stress and suffering and they lie within us. And similarly, in the same way, the roots of our happiness and peace lie within us. 
this may be the for many people the the beginning of our practice when we realize we have to turn our attention back in on ourselves and learn how to do that better we can all do it sometimes but often we have big gaps in our life when we forget or we lose our way we get attached to things and caught up in things and we forget so it's about learning to come back back to our own hearts and minds every day learning to look more carefully you can see from the Buddha's own life this is what he did <clears throat> like when he practiced under the Bodhi tree the night of his enlightenment they say what prompted him to begin sitting practicing mindfulness of breathing was remembering when he was just seven years old he had done that under the rose apple tree back in India his father the king was doing a ceremony the way kings do call it the plowing ceremony just the beginning of the growing season the king would do a ceremony just for good luck good fortune for a good harvest plow the fields so it has a use for the that society which is based around farming but for a little boy also he could see oh this isn't much interest as many people might you know many times in ceremonies you think this isn't so interesting I don't need this or maybe the Buddha just been a king in his past life so many times he knew all about doing ceremonies so quite naturally he just went off rather than participate in the ceremony he went off and sat under a tree and started meditating all by himself it's his own innate character obviously he meditated many many times in past lives just as we are here he'd obviously done it before so his mind just naturally inclined to just use that time to meditate quietly on the breath and he felt very peaceful very quickly often kids do when they meditate <clears throat> they're not like us adults who've picked up all kinds of attachments and problems in our life and have all kinds of <laughs> psychosis and different issues that we still have to resolve you know from kids haven't done that yet so when you teach them meditation or they practice it they get peaceful very easily often they don't think too much about things they don't try and analyze every problem you give them an instruction they'll do it so the Buddha gave himself his own instruction he just followed the breath and became so peaceful <clears throat> legend has it that he was so peaceful that the sun stopped moving for a while so that the shade of the tree stayed over him keeping him cool from the sun <laughs> instead of the sun seeming to move across the sky and they say the appearance was as if the sun had stopped and the shade of the tree just stayed with him all the time he was sitting in meditation people were so astounded afterwards they came and bowed to him because they realized oh this is something special it's the kind of thing that happens to a Buddha or a Bodhisattva on the night of his enlightenment the Buddha 
remembered that and he began his meditation just as when he had been seven years old remembering the peace of just following the breathing breathe in, breathe out letting go of stress, worries attachments and it's not like the Buddha didn't have any attachments he had a wife, a child, parents he had things he'd left behind he had a past he had a future just as we do he had a body so it's almost certain the Buddha would have had achy knees just like us achy back whatever else we're feeling right now the Buddha would have had that if you've ever sat meditation at the Bodhi tree in India you know you sit there at night you get bitten by mosquitoes all the time so the Buddha would have had mosquitoes biting him so no different from us but he turned inwards to this feeling that comes when you observe the breath breathe in, breathe out and focused his mind on that and let go of all these other things things you might say distractions different feelings and he did that well because he's practiced it before so that put his mind in the best state to start contemplating the truth to see the truth or to awaken as we say to the experience of Nibbana to wake up when you get, become peaceful watching the breath <clears throat> your main aim is to we say let go of craving wanting all that stuff that comes up in your mind it's either craving for sense objects we call that gama dhanha sight, sound, taste, smell, touch so that's thinking about things you like to look at images of people, places possessions things you like to smell, taste, touch, food whatever it is, music, sounds that's one kind of desire or craving that fills the mind you're letting go of all that letting it be letting it drop away from your mind by focusing on the breath so you're seeing all those desires are impermanent very clearly for yourself you're waking up to the truth you're also letting go of what we call vipavadanha vipavadanha is craving <clears throat> not to have not, not wanting not wanting experiences, not wanting feelings of pain, itches, pain and discomfort, not wanting unpleasant memories. So, Vipavadanha arises when you remember something that you didn't like, and then you start to feel anger again, ill will, or think of a person you don't like. All the different kind of thoughts associated with pushing away, rejection, ill will this is vipavadanha so when the Buddha was focusing on his breath he's both letting go of gamadanha and vipavadanha <clears throat> and the more subtle one, bhavadanha is a craving for being, for existence itself wanting pleasure to just carry on and on, wanting 
different experiences to carry on and on. The more subtle one. But in the end, the Buddha said, all forms of craving, wanting, which are the cause of suffering, come from avicca, lack of understanding, lack of mindfulness, lack of wisdom. They feed more attachment, they feed more suffering. But all forms of craving dropped away when he focused on the breath. So the mind becomes very peaceful. That's why we become peaceful when we meditate. Because craving is temporarily dropped away. We've let go of it. And this is probably the biggest obstacle when we come to meditate is dealing with our craving. It takes effort. It can be very frustrating dealing with our mind as craving comes up. Sometimes it frightens us. <clears throat> Just the fact that there's so much craving, it never seems to end. Sometimes people even get frightened to let go of craving because they're so used to it. That's who they feel they are. I am my craving. That's me, who I am. All my likes and dislikes, all my attachments. Even though it's the cause of suffering, sometimes we're still not willing to let it go. It's like we like to suffer. <laughs> We're so used to it. What we tend to do in the world with craving is try, because it is disturbing and agitating to the mind, normally we don't use methods that are wise, like what the Buddha did. Normally we just try and escape craving through distraction. So like when you have desire wanting in the mind, well, you try and fulfill it. So... You think of something that you want to do, or you go and do it. You want to eat something, you eat it. You want to look at something, you look at it. So we never really get to understand craving and how to abandon it. We tend to just follow it and try and indulge it so that we feel, feel better, feel satisfied. Or with Vipawadanha, <clears throat> also we try to follow it, indulge it. In a sense, we try to get rid of what we don't like, push it away, suppress it, get rid of it, destroy it. This is why meditation can be difficult at first, because you're dealing with all these emotions and desires which come up. And our habit is always just to follow them, try and get the things we like and push away the things we don't like. So we carry on doing that as we meditate. So we might sit here and you have some pain and then you get some negativity in your mind. Maybe just try and fantasize your way out of it. Think of something else. <clears throat> Plan your next year's holiday while we're waiting for the talk to finish. <laughs> dream, dream about our, you know, our ideal partner, what they look like, what they would be like, what it'd be like sitting on a, in a, our room with them one day. <laughs> Fantasies like that takes over the mind, but you're looking back at the cause, what's causing it, maybe it's just that desire for distraction. Or they once did a survey of meditators on retreat. <clears throat> the thing that came up most in their mind was just thinking about food. What's for the next meal? 
when you when you don't have control over your food, you think about it a lot. This is Gamadanha, just takes over the mind very easily and it's you know, it's it helps us distract us from maybe if we have a bit of pain or discomfort. Or we go the other way and end up sitting there just miserable, complaining about our life and what's happened and who we think we are and what's happened and who other people are and this has happened or we got some pain and we're not happy about that. And we can spend a whole hour being very angry. Actually wakes you up, doesn't it? If you're sleepy and you think about something that makes you angry, you're not sleepy anymore. So some people have told me they've stayed up all night on these all-night meditation sessions fueled by anger. <laughs> when you're angry, you sit up straight. <laughs> Your adrenaline gets going. You, you can't fall asleep when you're angry. And not just on all-night meditation sessions. You just remember times when you've been very angry, you can't sleep at night, can you? rolling back and forth, thinking about whatever it is that makes you angry. You can't sleep, can't concentrate because of anger. But we tend to go back and forth between desire for our, the objects of our senses, Dhanha, and in anger, back and forth, until we gradually bring up enough mindfulness on the breath that we can let these things go. So maybe the Buddha did it better than us because he had practiced more than us, but that was what he was doing on the night of his enlightenment, letting go of craving, letting it drop till the mind comes to the breath, stays with the breath, and starts to experience what we call peace, inner peace, based on letting go of craving. <clears throat> Not only craving, but letting go of all kinds of things we normally think about. <clears throat> So we say the sense of self drops away when you're just with the breath. And that gives you a whole new look on your own way of thinking, your own body, your own mind. Because when your mind becomes peaceful with the breath and you're not wanting anything or wanting to get rid of anything, you're just with the breath, there's no sense of self at that moment. It drops away. So you can see, oh, it's very peaceful when you let go of your, your, your sense of self, the ego. <clears throat> then when you've experienced that clearly, then later when this ego comes back, all the complaining and wanting and all the stuff that goes on in your mind comes back, you can see it much more clearly for what it is, that it, oh, this is the suffering. When I hold on to all this stuff, I'm, ha I'm unhappy. It stirs us up. So this practice of mindfulness of breathing, the Buddha said, can lead us all the way to the same enlightened knowledge that the Buddha had. Because it gives us a whole new way of looking at our life, ourself. When you're with the breath, all that we identify with, who I am. You're not, when you're breathing and just with the breath, there's no man, no woman, no young, no old. There's no past, no future. You're just with the present moment. There's no greed. You're just with the breath. There's no anger. Just with the breath. There's no delusion. You're not 
clinging on to all kinds of ideas about the world and all your hopes and wishes, all of that fades, just peaceful in the present moment. That starts to give you a taste of Nibbana or a taste of what the Buddha realized on the night of his enlightenment. It's not the end of the practice yet. You might say it's just the beginning of the practice, but it gives you a taste of what, where you're going and how you have to proceed. And if you've had a taste of the peace that comes when you do this mindfulness of breathing, you have less doubt, so you get more confidence in what the Buddha taught. Get more confidence in your own ability. If you just have one time, you have a little bit of peace where you've dropped all your normal worries and anger, well, you can see you can do it. Even though it might have been a bit of a struggle, took some time, it can be done. So you get a lot of confidence from that. If you keep practicing, the Buddha said you actually become fearless. That's the way the Buddha described somebody who meditates gets to the point where the mind is peaceful. They become fearless. That's not fearless in the way, you know, like some sort of gangster who can walk down the street not afraid of anyone. <clears throat> fearless towards our own mind, which is the real gangster, the real cause of our trouble in life. Our own attachments, our addictions, our obsessions, our attachments to things. As I was saying earlier, sometimes people get to the point where they're meditating and they don't want to let go of craving even though they know it's suffering because they're so used to it. We feel if we let go there'll be nothing left and we have the idea that there must be something there for me to be alive, be a person, there must be something there but if that something is suffering maybe it's worth letting go. So sometimes we have to take a leap of confidence or we use this fearlessness we get from the practice to just keep going. Say your breath becomes very subtle, very refined. All the thoughts stop. All the normal thinking and worrying stops. You're not listening to anything. You're not looking at anything. You're just with the mind itself. They say, sometimes they say it's like coming to a cliff edge it's like, oh, am I going to die? Oh, am I just going to float away and disappear and never come back? People have all these kind of experiences. So often they stop at that moment. Maybe they even have fear come up. So they stop meditating. Oh, back to square one, all the craving comes back. All the thinking, worrying, different stuff comes back. So at that point, when the mind becomes very peaceful and this sense of self disappears, we do have to be brave, trust in the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, trust in our own ability to practice, trust in 
teachers and so on. You know, nobody ever died and nobody ever did just float away and disappear doing this. <laughs> and we carry on at that point where the very sense of self is disappearing and what we're used to attaching to fades away, we just carry on and learn. So we have to have the attitude of one who is learning from our own experience. We're learning, we're observing, we're finding out. If we just withdraw at that point, <clears throat> it's like, no, I don't want to do this. <laughs> well, you won't learn, you won't get further in your practice. And unfortunately, many meditators do this, they just give up. It's easier just to follow craving again, go back to what we were thinking before. We know what we're going to do tomorrow, We've got our plans, okay. <laughs> and we actually keep stumbling or sticking at this point where we're about to let go, but we don't want to. For whatever reason, we keep holding on. So the, the mind goes back to normal following craving. But maybe this night, this is Waisak, we can remember the Buddha. Maybe this one night we say, I'll just carry on a little bit more than usual. Sit a bit longer, walk meditation, sit meditation. And if everything goes quiet, I'll just sit there with this stillness, with this quietness. I won't look for anything else. And if you do achieve some stillness, some quietness, just enjoy it. It is pleasant, it's peaceful. Get used to that. Get used to the letting go. Get used to being still. No, there's no danger involved. There's nothing really to fear. And you, this is where you learn a lot about yourself and the true nature of things, that this process of awaking up to truth. And the more you're with this stillness, the longer you are with it, you can see all kinds of new understandings arise. You understand, oh, every thought I have is anicca, anichang, it's impermanent. Because if your mind is still and you're really with that stillness, then out of that a thought arises. You don't grasp onto it, get caught up in it, you just watch it arise, pass away. What is impermanent is dukkha, in the sense it's just, that's its nature, it doesn't last. You can't have it, you can't own it, it's not really you. So what is anicca, what is dukkha, is anatta. It's not yours, it's not yourself, it's just a thought. If the stillness is really strong, even feelings, even painful feelings, you can see just the same. If you can't see it yet, it means you haven't done it enough. You have to practice more. But small, painful feelings you already probably can see. They're impermanent. What's impermanent is not self. It's just a feeling, comes and goes. When your mind is still, you can see this, you can understand this. So this is like awakening to the same truth that the Buddha awakened to. Pain, feeling, even pleasant feeling. It's not self. It's not to be grasped at or clung to a self. 
It's just known as feeling that is impermanent. It arises, passes away. So when we're peaceful and still like this, this is where the mind starts to really learn, gets deeper down under the surface of things. Because normally, as I said earlier, we're in a kind of dream state or in this drunken state. The normal state of the mind, caught up in craving, always thinking, caught up into moods, wanting, not wanting, distracted, sleepy, all the different experiences, they're like a dream. And the mind isn't really seeing the reality of things. So we keep grasping at our own moods and feelings as self, grasp at this body as a self. And then what happens? Oh, we suffer. We get attached to the highs. We like it when things go well, but then we can't hold on to the highs. They pass, so we get we, we suffer because we can't hold on to the highs, can't always get the happy, pleasant experiences that we crave. And then we have lows, where sometimes things we don't want happen, things we don't like, experiences come our way. This is the alternative. When we're not seeing, we're not awakened to the truth, the mind is just caught up into this kind of dream, always liking, disliking, wanting, not wanting, keeps grasping at things because this sense of self is very strong. But when we have some stillness, now we can look back and see through a little bit deeper and see these things are not really a self. They're passing experiences. It's not that they're not there, like sometimes we misunderstand this, like... There is something there, it's just it's not a self that you can control or say is me, mine, make it the way you want. These are experiences or phenomena that go according to different causes and conditions. They arise, they pass away. So if you want a comparison, like the one they like to give, the Buddhas and others give, is the, a river. Like we say, this person, me, we have a name, we say, this is me, this is who I am. We have an idea of a self. In the same way, we have a river. So we call it the Yarra River, just down the road, Yarra River. But what is the Yarra River? Is it the water? So you look at the Yarra River, that water you see, within a few moments, it's passed by. The water is constantly changing because it flows all the time. <clears throat> is it the banks? Well, the banks of the river are actually always changing. If you live anywhere near the Yarra River, you'll sit, you'll notice you know, trees and plants grow and then they fall in and bits of the bank fall in when there's a high river, then it gets eroded away. Rocks move around. Is it the base of the river? You know, the gravel and the mud on the base? Well, that's also moving around. When you get heavy rain, it changes. You can see the change. Rivers change all the time. So where is the, the river? And there's nothing fixed in that. It's just an idea, a label. And it's useful, we say Yarrow River. But there's nothing fixed that we can say is the river all the time. It's there. It's constantly changing. 
in the same way you look back at yourself with a mind of stillness, quietness, and you have to acknowledge or wake up to the truth. Mm, what I usually take as self is actually changing all the time. It's nothing fixed, nothing I can control, nothing I can have. Whether it's the body itself, aging, changing, feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, memories, perceptions, thoughts. Thoughts is a very obvious one, constantly coming and going, changing all the time. When we grasp at all these things as self, then we start to suffer because we want to control them, make them the way we like. We want pleasant feelings all the time, but we don't get. We want, have all kinds of wishes. We want to have nice thoughts and yet half our thoughts are not very nice. On and on it goes. We want our body to be healthy and strong and keep young. It doesn't follow what we want. So we suffer when we attach to the body, feelings, thoughts and so on. But when the mind becomes still, like the Buddha, then we start to see the truth. Well, these things are not self, not to be grasped at as self. So the mind lets go. This letting go is just a <clears throat> mental act, something you do internally when you see that the grasping is suffering, and then you let go. You know, like even pain. Say tonight, if you're sitting, you have pain in your knees, pain in your back. What we tend to do is try and push it away, get rid of it. But when you push something away, what do you do? You actually say you physically, you push something away that you don't like. You're putting your hand on it, so you actually attach to it when you push something away. You say, I don't want this, I don't like this. So we try and distract ourselves, get away from a painful feeling. But because we're attaching to it, it keeps coming up, keeps bothering us. When you let, mentally let go and you see a feeling is just a feeling, even a painful one, it's just a feeling, that's like no longer attaching to it, no longer grasping at it, then maybe you can experience a mind that is not bothered by pain. It doesn't have any aversion or rejection of pain, just knows, oh, it's just like that. It's not grasping at it. Life is like this. Whatever we don't like, we tend to attach in our mind. I don't like this, don't want this. Could be a person or a place or some experience. The more you label it as something you don't like and you attach to it in that way, the worse it becomes and the more you hold on to it, the more it bothers you because you're holding on to it by attaching to it with aversion. If you can be more mindful and just know it as an experience, oh, it's just this feeling or just this thought, then you can see it just arises and passes away. It's not self, it's not really you. So this is what we're learning in our practice following the steps of the Buddha. Learning to still the mind and then look and understand more Clearly, these things are not self, not to be grasped at as self. So you get a mental letting go of attachment. And that's the ultimate or the, the greatest peace we can have in our minds. 
if we completely let go, Ajahn Chah used to say, if you let go a little, you only have a little suffering. If you let go a lot, you have even less suffering. If you completely let go, there'll be no suffering in the mind at all. So, you've practiced letting go already for a couple of hours. You've meditated, chanted, listened to my talk very quietly, very politely. So, I'll leave the talk there. It's given you some guidance, I hope, some idea how to practice for the rest of the night. And because it's Waysak, uh next part of our program is we're going to do some walking meditation around the hall. It's cold, so you can wrap up. And we have some flowers and electric candles for you to hold. And we walk three times around the hall, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. So the first round, Buddha, Buddha, Buddha. Some meditation, so no need to chat. You can chat other times. This is a meditation. Buddha, 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 Dhammo, Dhammo, Sango, Sango. Um, so I think we have some uh, flowers and candles to give out. We can give them out.